Welcome to the Puberty Prof Podcast, where information and tools are shared to help you have conversations about puberty and other growing up topics. Here is your host, Lori Reichel, the Puberty Prof, a nationally recognized health educator, author of the award-winning book, Common Questions Children Ask About Puberty, and creator of the Talk Puberty app. And welcome to the Puberty Prof Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lori Reichel, the Puberty Prof. As you know, this podcast is about equipping our listeners with the most updated information about growing up, including those pubertal changes, yet also about what life skills young people need to be as happy and healthy as possible. So this episode is focusing on the concrete aspects of communication skills that we can teach to young people and actually use ourselves as adults because certainly sometimes I slip up, I can demonstrate unhealthy communication, yet I know that the more I talk about and teach healthy communication skills, the better I become in communicating. So to help talk about how we teach communication skills to ourselves and others, is our guest today, Jen Mead, who is the 2022 New York State Health Teacher of the Year. <laughs> Thanks, Lori. <laughs> Thanks so much for being here, Jen. Would you like to say hi to our listeners? Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm, I'm super excited to be here talking about communication skills um, or any skills, really. I think that's how, uh, how Lori and I kind of found each other because we were both really passionate about passionate about equipping young people with the skills they need to be healthy and happy. And it's so wild. I've been out of New York for some years and then returning and seeing the proactivity of what you do in the classroom and just like the skill base, because some people don't understand how to teach this way. So Jen, can you give us some of your background and even in addition to like how you were trained to do what you do and then how you offer services for others to learn how to teach skills and skill development to young people. Yeah, so I got my start, my undergrad at Penn State where I studied kinesiology. And in Pennsylvania, I got a dual certificate in health and PE. And then went on to do my master's at the Teachers College at Columbia um, where I focused on health education. And um, for a while I was teaching both subjects, health and PE. And honestly, I think, my love of activity and movement and physical education equipped me well to teach skills because I really understood that model, right? You know, I, as someone who loves moving and teaches skiing, I understand that you can't just take someone to the most advanced trail on the mountain. You have to start with lead up skills to get them there. And that's really what we're doing in health education. Um, I lucked out and had a really ideal situation. So I had a great teaching partner who wanted to teach skills. I had a supportive administrator. I had access to loads of professional development and I had lots of time on my hands. So I was really able to make the switch almost immediately um, as a new teacher. And 20 years later, I know a lot of health educators don't have that ideal situation. So I really started health at school to help the health educators who I was constantly meeting, who wanted to switch to teaching skills-based health, but maybe didn't have the time or the 
professional development or just like wanted to see an example. And so with Health at School, I try and give people some of that training and some of the tools. And then for folks who like, let's be honest, health teachers are often teaching multiple preps. They might also be teaching other subjects. We, we have families, we have lives. So sometimes they don't have the time. So I have kind of take and teach lessons that they can implement in their classrooms and then tweak as needed to suit their teaching style and their students. Wonderful. And can I also add on that you're a parent of a couple of young people, is that correct? Yes, I am a mom of a seventh grader and a fifth grader. Um, so I'm living puberty full out right now. Um, <laughs> one of my son's friends, they used to joke that, you know, did you catch it yet? <laughs> um, yeah, so um, I'm living it in the classroom as a seventh grade health teacher, but also I'm living it right here at home. Yeah, well, I'm sure you can figure out how to teach both at home because it is a different environment and as well as in the classroom. So if we can talk about maybe some strategies for both of those in today's episode, that'd be really wonderful. Yeah, I'd like that. So we're going to go to what this healthy communication skill or skills are about. And before we jump into what it means, why do you think it's so important for preteens, for those preteen years? Well, I think this is really the first time where kids are being asked and required to be more independent, right? So they come out of their elementary years where they have tons of support and there's a lot of built-in communication between the school and the parents to middle school where a lot of those supports go away and they're really required to be more independent and communication is essential for them to advocate for themselves if they need help for something and also just to assert themselves like this is what I need, what I want, what I think, what I feel. Um, and when they can do that in healthier ways, they tend to have better relationships and all the other positive things that come from that. So higher self-confidence and better mental health. Um, and all of those things contribute to them having a better experience in those tween years, which can be pretty stressful. Yeah. So what does healthy communication mean? When I teach it at school, I really focus on a few aspects. So I teach it within the uh, kind of context of healthy relationships. And I talk to students about being assertive. So being able to communicate what you want, need, think, or feel without kind of trampling on the needs, wants, and feelings of others. We talk about the importance of empathy, being able to understand what someone else wants, needs, thinks, or feels, and then how to reconcile when those things are different, right? So whether that's me being able to say no to something or to resolve a conflict or to solve a problem, um, doing that as well. I know I often talk about the difference between passive communication, assertive, and then aggressive communication. And then we have that mix of passive aggressive and mm -hmm. which passive is when you don't stand up for yourself, basically in a variety of ways. And then assertive, you do stand up for yourself in a, I want to say the word assertive again, but I'm not supposed to use the word in the definition, but in a way that actually is not, if I say aggressive or hurtful to another person, yet you're speaking from your heart and then aggressive is that more, 
more in your face or more pushy way of communicating. Do you also do that comparison of those three different types? Yeah, I kind of show it as a continuum, right? From passive all the way up through aggressive. And uh, I also like to point out that there's times when being passive or aggressive may be appropriate. You know, if if my friends and I are going to a movie and I really don't care what movie we watch, then it's okay for me to say whatever you guys want, which is kind of a passive response, right? Or um, if I'm walking downtown with my friend and they're chatting with me and on their phone and they're about to step into traffic, it's okay if I yell at them, hey, stop, <laughs> right? And be a little bit aggressive because the situation warrants it. But in most situations, I talk about that kind of ideal blend where, like you were saying, I can say what I want or what I need or what I think or what I feel, but still be respectful of, of other people as well. As a teacher, I, I make it a point to try not to demonstrate or certainly not to have students demonstrate less than ideal. So as a teacher, when I talk about passive, I won't give a situation and say, okay, somebody tell me a passive response because that's not the behavior I'm encouraging, right? So I mm -hmm. might tell them, here's an example of a passive response. Here's an example of an aggressive response. You guys tell me the assertive response because um, trying to be strength-based, I really want them to hear and focus and practice being assertive. I don't need them to practice being aggressive or passive. Well, would you break down what that healthy communication is, like when we teach it, like how do you teach it? Yeah, so I do a lot of scenario-based situations. Um, for example, we do one where a kid is at a friend's house and they want to be able to stay later. So they call home and um, I kind of have a situation that ends with the kid not getting what they want. And then we talk about what we could do differently. So simple things, just like a greeting. So sometimes in our haste to get what we want, we skip kind of the niceties. And as a result, we're received as someone who might be a little bit demanding. So mm -hmm. instead of picking up the phone and saying, mom, can I stay later? Maybe we're saying, hi, mom, you know, just having that greeting in the beginning and making sure that we recognize the difference in relationships. So if there's kind of a relationship where there's a hierarchy, recognizing that posing a question instead of making a statement might be helpful. Um, and then part of being empathetic is understanding where someone else is coming from. So if I'm asking to stay out later, I should try and understand why my family might want me home at the time they want me home. You know, they want me home because they want to make sure I have dinner and that I get a good night's sleep and that my homework's done and they might even want to hang out with me a little bit. Um, so if I can build my request while respecting those things, I'm more likely to get what I want. So oftentimes I come across teaching it as these are ways that you're more likely to get what you want and to be happy and healthy. Um, and I do it with scenarios. So where we might pick apart something that might happen to give them a chance to see what might work better. Now, I will admit that I do this with students. I don't care what age they typically are, but if they come up to me and they start asking a question, like you're prepping for the next lesson or something, and they just start talking with you, I typically am like, hi, 
Yeah. And they still might ask the question and I go, hi, again, <laughs> do you do the same? Yeah, I try to, um, <laughs> I just try and remind them that those things make a difference. You know, it kind of sets the tone for the rest of our conversation, uh, whether it's with their parent, their teacher, or even with a friend, it helps to, I mean, sometimes they feel a little silly, silly, but those niceties kind of set the tone of the conversation that you're about to have. We talk a lot about tone too, you know? Yeah. If I say, I'm sorry, you know, everything about that sorry <laughs> says, no, you're not. Um, and so we we incorporate that. And I I do a lot of games and challenges where they have to use those communication skills, where I can point out um, things that they're doing really well. And hey, had we rethought this, we might've done it a little differently. Yeah. Because I know even just having a greeting and I know, Sometimes we might be in a rush and we just want an answer, but especially at the beginning of a class, I even say hi to my students, like, hi, how are you? You know, let's do a check-in because we're people first mm -hmm. versus being a teacher and a student. Um, you, you brought up tone in which I know that when we express a message, tone can bring a certain aspect of the message to people. And how would you explain that? So, cause you did say, how you, your tone. Mm -hmm. So what is tone in your eyes Yeah, or so, ears? <laughs> well, a lot of times I use examples um, that I'm sorry is one that I think we've all universally experienced at some point and how what we really hear is what's implied by the tone rather than the words, right? So if I say, I'm really sorry, I hear an apology versus if I say, I'm sorry, I hear someone who's being forced to say, I'm sorry, or is not sorry at all. Um, so a lot of times I'll give people sample lines to say with different tones, like the line we need to talk, you know, depending on how you say that, it could be <laughs> for my middle school students, it's someone's breaking up with me, right? Mm -hmm. um, or it could be great news. And it depends on the tone and the body language that comes with that. So um, again, I like to give them an opportunity to see see it and do it, um, partially because I learned better that way as well, um, to kind of see it in action. And even when we talk about puberty in class, I do it all as games and challenges that the students have to figure out on their own because it forces them to talk and cooperate. And these mm -hmm. are skills that allow us to cooperate with one another as well. Yeah. So you brought up body language, which, how would you explain body language to people? Yeah, well, usually if you bring it up, people can identify it. So if I say to my students, um, everybody show me bored, you know, some of them don't have to try hard, um, right? So they can demonstrate that or show me excited or show me scared. Um, they can, without saying a word, they can portray that emotion. And so I often, again, will do that. I might have um, like emotional charades where I let kids be the emotion and other kids kind of guess what it is. And honestly, that's part of empathy too, being able to read people's body language. So not just, you know, if you ask me how I'm doing and I say, I'm fine versus like, I'm fine. There's a difference in that. And so mm -hmm. um, empathy means I can, I can read beyond your words to what you might be feeling as well. 
I know from what the research says is that uh, a lot of our message is expressed to, to is expressed through the body language. And I find it so interesting because we can always show like barriers in communication. People don't even realize it at times. And so that body language, you know, if I'm not even facing somebody, if I'm supposed to be talking with you and I even just move my chair that I'm not looking at the screen anymore to look at you, Jen, I'm looking at the wall, that in yeah. itself says I'm not paying attention to you. And probably the hugest barrier I've seen, even at restaurants, is this cell phone coming out that, oh yeah, I'm talking to you. And then I start looking down at the phone, but that's really a distraction. It tells me you're not paying attention. So it's those simple things we might do with our body or electronic devices that can send the message that we're really not listening to somebody. Yeah. And I think um, technology is a huge part of how young people communicate with each other. And so being mindful of that is also worthwhile. You know, I can type an emoji next to a message to try and get that tone across, but recognizing that some things might be miscommunicated that way is also worthwhile. And maybe there's some things that we don't want to communicate that way um, because it might be misunderstood. Or at the same token, maybe there's things that we're nervous to say to each other face-to-face. -face. And so that technology gives us the opportunity to maybe express something that we wouldn't be able to otherwise. But but absolutely, I think um, it's easy for us to be distracted. And I think as adults, um, we need to model good behavior when it comes to that as well. So I have a seventh grade son who may be the only seventh grader without a cell phone um, and we'll, we'll get one soon. And so I'm very cognizant now knowing that's on a horizon of what I'm doing with my phone, because I think, um, Sometimes we don't even practice what we preach. You know, as adults, how do we interact with our children when we're asking them a question? Are we also on our phones? And as we'd be so frustrated with them if they did that to us. Absolutely. So modeling is so important. So if we go to look at what is that assertive communication, it, it we have to remember our body language. And that includes, you know, if our shoulders are, it could be relaxed, but they're back, we're not slouched, we're facing the person we're speaking with, if we're in person, uh, maybe doing an occasional nod. Uh, and then the tone, making sure that how we speak, you know, how we say something matches what we're truly trying to express, like, Jen, you're wonderful, versus Jen, you're wonderful, you know, like that sarcasm that comes out in the tone. And then to make sure we're using words that are actually healthy. Like I was thinking when you were saying, I'm sorry, some people say the phrase, my bad. And that to me, those words don't express sorrow. Mm -hmm. It's more like, yeah, my bad. And it, no, no. So we have to make sure we're using assertive words to express that we truly are sor sorry or we, whatever message we're trying to express to the other person. Yeah. And I think that comes, you know, we have conversations about what language is appropriate with different people also, you know, mm -hmm. um, whether it's slang terms or my bad versus I'm sorry, or how I'm talking to my grandparent versus how I'm talking to my friend that we might choose different language as a result of who we're talking to. And that's really a smart way to communicate. Um, 
assimilating a little bit with your audience, I think is helpful without giving up who you actually are, you know? Well, what do you think are some of the challenges for somebody to talk about puberty and other growing up events? What do you think are some of the barriers for assertive communication? I think it can be tough because for a variety of reasons. I think we happen to live in a culture where talking about our bodies is sometimes kind of uncomfortable. And I think helping students to develop comfort with that is important or even our own children. Like I know that's important with my own, my own children. And I think that as a parent can start at a very young age, you know, the, the terms that we use to identify body parts with our, with our little kids so that one, they're aware of appropriate language and, and just recognizing that if they did need to communicate something, it's helpful to have the right term. So when I talk about anatomy with my middle school students and they get a little, you know, squeamish, I, I talk about, you know, hey, and I point to my nose, you know, what's this called? Or I point mm -hmm. to my elbow, what's this called? And they all right. know it. And there's not a bunch of other terms. You know, we don't, we don't have 27 terms to describe the shoulder. And yeah. so it's helpful to have common terms, even when we're talking about our, our anatomy and that knowing those things can help advocate for our own health, whether it's with our doctor or telling our parents something or later telling a partner something, I think that's important. So I think one of the biggest barriers is just the initial discomfort about doing it. And um, I, I can't think of the word for it, but it's, it's almost, uh, you know, when um, people who have allergies and they get shots to sh slowly build up their tolerance to that allergen, it's mm -hmm. kind of like that. I think we kind of build up their tolerance or their comfort level with the topic by providing them opportunities to talk about it, um, which is why it would be great if they get some of that education in their elementary school experience and then again in their middle school experience. And if they're talking about it at home, that that develops a level of comfort that makes them feel okay saying what they need to say, whether it's changes in their body or discomfort somewhere or questions that they just wanna have answered. Yeah. In which if we're talking with younger people about basic stuff, even our body parts, and then for puberty, what happens, think about if we set that base now, how much easier it'll be if a child comes to us and talks about you know, the decision to make, to have sex. Mm -hmm. you know, that we're setting, like you said, a base, a comfort right. level, even though it might, we might not want to consider a young person ready to engage in sex, but we want them to be able to come to an adult to ask for and, and receive age and developmentally appropriate and correct answers. Right. Or to talk to, even if I think about it, a lot of times they're talking to their peers or they're talking to a potential partner. And if they've had conversations with adults and their friends prior to that, you're training them, right? In the same way that an athlete is gonna practice a bunch before they get to the to the game, I think the more that they talk about it, the more comfort they'll have um, in being able to talk in situations where they need to, whether that's asking something of a parent, of a doctor, or of a partner. Yeah. Which I'm gonna do a plug here. That's why I created the Talk Puberty app because it's to help people just practice, make fun of the questions, say the questions out loud. It's a practice in communicating. And that's what we're attempting to do. So 
I do want to ask you a personal question and you're free to pass, but do you remember anything from your own past about like how people communicated with you when you were growing up? Um, I don't know that I have anything hugely uh, stand out. I, I do have, um, I'll, sh I'll share a personal experience. Aaron's law is a law that in New York state requires teaching about um, sexual abuse in grades K through eight. Um, and it was inspired by someone who had gone through sexual abuse. And I make sure that that's something that's incorporated in my curriculum. But as a young person, as a middle school student, I had an experience with sexual abuse. And I, um, I, I knew, you know, something wasn't right. And I also knew that my family would um, believe me and trust me, but I was still really scared to communicate that. And I talked to my friends long before I talked to an adult. And I think there's a valuable lesson in that because I think kids do feel comfort with their peers. And so one of the reasons why it's so important to educate students on a wide variety of topics, including sexual abuse, is so that when their friends do confide, confide in them, they kind of have the right skills to respond to that, right? So being able to respond with empathy is really important because it allows someone to keep telling their story. But then beyond that, knowing how to respond beyond that confession from a friend, right? This is one of those red flag, th red flag things. If, if my friend tells me this or this, you know, something about their mental health or something about abuse or something about substance abuse, all things that happen and start to erupt during those tween years, it's helpful for peers to know how to respond. So I need to respond to my friend appropriately, but then I have to recognize that now I got to go talk to a trusted adult about this. It's important that I talk to a trusted adult and I just, I don't um, shoulder the responsibility of that myself. And so I think from my own experience, um, that's something that I would I would share that I think it's useful as adults to know that kids confide in their friends, even when they have awesome adults in their life. And one of the great reasons for us to have health education and puberty education is so that kids learn how to respond to each other and can become a safety net to help people get the resources and services they need. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate the um, you sharing that because it brings up another topic we need to talk with children about, and that's Aaron's law. And um, and so thank you for bringing that up. Um, now, for our listeners, I am asking Jen to return to an, another episode to talk about a specific skill, a specific communication skill of an I feel statement. Uh, so for today, we're we're going to conclude. Jen will be back, but we're coming up to the end of our time for today's episode. And before we go, Jen, how can people get in touch with you if they want to find out more or even know what tools you have that they can use? Yeah, so people can check out my website. It's gethealthatschool.com. And they can find me at the same handle on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. If they just look for Get Health at School, they should be able to, to find me in any of those avenues. Wonderful. And I'll make sure that there's links in this episode's description so people can easily just click on there and find all the information about who you are and all the tools that you just mentioned. Awesome. 
Well, thanks so much for being here today, Jen. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Lori. And to our listeners, again, if you want to get in touch with Jen, as she had said, feel free to connect with her. Connect with myself at pubertyprof.com or email me at pubertyprof at gmail.com. I thank you so much for listening in, and I hope that you have a happy and healthy day. Thank you for listening to the Puberty Prof Podcast, where information and tools are shared to help you have conversations about puberty and other growing up topics. Did you enjoy this episode? Please like, share, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow the Puberty Prof on Twitter or Instagram. The Puberty Prof, Lori Reichel, wants to hear from you. Go to pubertyprof.com or click on the link in this episode's description. There you can find more information, as well as ask questions to be answered by the Puberty Prof in a future episode. That's pubertyprof.com. Also, remember to check out the Talk Puberty app and the book, Common Questions Children Ask About Puberty. Until next time, this is the Puberty Prof Podcast, where information and tools are shared to help you have conversations about puberty and other growing up topics.